Chapter 16 of A Game of Chance by a Self-Made Man This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 All's Well That Ends Well The railroad station was not far from the Northport Cotton Mills, and Lewis Jarvis had to pass the factory on his way home. He had not noticed Jesse Fairweather since the evening Will Summers had interfered between them on her behalf, and with good reason, for the spirited girl took good care to keep out of his way, having no desire for any further intercourse with him. Lewis was feeling somewhat exalted from the stimulating effect of bad whiskey on his brain. As he came along, the factory girls were leaving the mills, the full force having been put to work that day for the first time since the fire. Jessie was walking slowly down the street in expectation that Will would soon catch up with her as usual. He had not yet appeared when Lewis Jarvis saw her ahead. The sight of her at this moment aroused all that was ugly in his disposition. He hastened his steps and soon caught up with her. "'Going to speak with me this time, aren't you?' he demanded in a husky voice and with a half-intoxicated leer that startled the girl. Jesse made no answer but started to cross to the other side of the road when he put out his hand and roughly detained her. "'Going to answer me or not?' he said menacingly. "'Leave me alone, Will Jarvis,' she cried angrily. "'You wouldn't dare touch me if Will Summers was here.' "'What do I care for Summers?' he returned with a hiccup. "'Miserable pauper! Common upstart! Thinks he's as good as me! Know who I am, don't you?' "'I believe you have been drinking,' cried Jessie in dismay. "'Been drinking? Sure thing! All gentlemen drink! My father's squire, most important gentleman of the town! He drinks! So do I!' "'If you don't take your hand from my arm, Louis Jarvis,' cried Jessie desperately, I'll slap your face. Which face? This face? asked Lewis with drunken humor. You'll slap nothing, see? I've got you now, and I'm going to kiss you. At this threat, Jesse struck him full in the face, but he seized her in both his arms and tried to carry out his purpose. Jesse, unable to help herself further, uttered a shrill scream which reached Will's ears as he was coming out of the engine yard gate. The boy started to her assistance at once. He was full of fight this time and furious at seeing her struggling in the grasp of a well-dressed ruffian, for he did not at once recognize Lewis Jarvis. Coming up at a run, he seized Lewis boldly as the young aristocrat was bending back her head to accomplish his reckless object, and, tearing him away from the girl, he flung him in a heap against the fence. "'Oh, Will!' cried Jessie impulsively, throwing her arms about his neck and dropping her face on his shoulder. She burst into hysterical weeping. What was he trying to do, Jesse? Oh, he, he was going to kiss me. She sobbed like a frightened child. It's Lewis Jarvis, isn't it? He cried in some astonishment, now recognizing the squire's son, as that reckless youth staggered to his feet with a fierce scowl on his features. Yes, and he's been drinking, shuddered the girl. Oh, yes. "'I'll get square with you for that, Will Summers,' yelled Lewis furiously. "'I will or I have to die for it.' "'Come along, Jesse,' said Will, ignoring the vengeful youth. Lewis shook his fist after them as they passed on. "'You, pauper you! I'll fix that dam for you and burst your whole scheme up. You understand? You'll strike me, will you, you beggar? I'll fix you. Just see if I don't.' he screamed out. Will heard the threat, but he and Jesse went on as if Lewis had spoken to the empty air. 
Lewis watched them out of sight before he left the spot. It was getting dark now, and he managed to reach home without attracting any comment. Fortunately for him, his father was absent in Boston on business, and so he escaped a well-merited reprimand for the condition he was in. That week, Will received from Washington a certificate, confirming to him for the usual number of years the patent rights on his improved damper regulator, and the superintendent made an agreement with his mother, as his guardian, for its use in a factory engine room on a regular royalty. Specifications for his new steam economizer and condenser were at the same time drawn up and forwarded to a patent attorney in the capital city to be patented, and we may well state here that in due time he sold the rights to the Northport Cotton Mills for $5,000. Superintendent Harper had, at Will's request, visited the swamp lot and investigated the outlook. His verdict assured the boy that he would have a 10-acre field of ice in due course to sell to the Rockland Ice Company, which was in the market for such privileges as soon as they were ripe. "'How did you manage it?' asked Mr. Harper curiously. "'You seem to have had better luck than Mr. Rickson.' And then Will told him all about it. "'Upon my word, you are a bright boy, for a fact. I never should have thought of that plan myself, had I been in your shoes. Well, you deserve all your luck. Your game of chance has turned out to be a game of certainty, after all.' As they left the spot, they did not see a crouching form hiding in the underbrush. It was Ed Rickson, and he had a crowbar with him. As soon as all was still again, he clambered out on the dam, and inserting the end of the bar between a narrow crack in the boards, began to pry them apart. His object was apparent. He meant to make a sufficiently large opening in the dam to allow the confined water to escape. By morning, the prospects of an ice harvest on the ten-acre lot would be ruined, for that season at least. Fortunately, the plans of the wicked do not always prosper. Before Will reached home, he missed his big horn-handled jackknife, which was a handy companion in the engine room repair shop. By George, he said, I remember I laid that down on one of the stringers of the dam while I was talking to Mr. Harper. I must go back and get it. So he hastily retraced his steps. As he drew near the dam, he heard queer sounds, not unlike the ripping of boards, and he began to wonder, Great Scott! It can't be those boards are giving away under the pressure of the water. If they are, the pond will be ruined in a few hours. He rushed forward to investigate. At that moment the moon, which had been obscured all evening, suddenly shone out between a rift in the clouds, and Will saw something that staggered him. It was Ed Rickson, hard at work in his effort to destroy the dam. Hi there! What are you doing? Will cried in astonished anger. Rickson turned in a startled way and dropped the crowbar into the water. "'Come out of that!' exclaimed Will. "'Got a thunder!' replied the rascal. "'So would you, Ed Rickson. "'You're a nice scoundrel, you are, "'trying to spoil my property!' ejaculated Will, "'as mad as he could be when he came to realize "'the despicable attempt to ruin his ice privilege. "'Well, it's me, all right,' replied Rickson in surly tones, "'for he saw the game was up, especially as a crowbar was gone. "'What are you going to do about it?' I'm going to hand you over to Constable Brady right away. You tell it well, you little monkey. If I get a hold of you, I'm going to polish you off quicker than grease lightning. And he meant it, too. Now, it happened that Will's blood was up, and so reckless of consequences was he that he clambered out on the dam, determined to bring Ed Rickson to justice at last. Ed saw him coming and waited with a diabolical grin. He was satisfied he could easily handle Will Summers, as stout a lad as he looked. 
When they tackled in the center of the dam, he found out that the job was not as easy as he had supposed. It was a pretty even thing, however, as to which would come out ahead. Wait until I get a good grip on you and I'll toss you into your pond, blast you, gritted Ed. As they struggled and struck at one another on top of the dam, they were in alternate light and shadow, as the moon shone down upon their writhing forms or hid her face behind a drifting cloud. It was a fight to the finish, and no mistake. Will was a bit overmatched, but not outclassed. With all his fighting qualities aroused, he was crowding his more experienced antagonist pretty hard. He was strong and tough, and his fists were like small sledgehammers. Every time they landed on Rickson, he grunted, while Will took his own punishment in silence, never yielding an inch to his antagonist in any stage, though the blood trickled from a nasty cut over his eye. At length, Will's greater power of endurance began to prevail. Taking advantage of this, the boy ducked down, seized Ed's leg below the knee, and jerking it up, overbalanced his antagonist, who pitched sideways into the water of the pond. That ended the fight. Rickson came up from his plunge, completely subdued. It was not improbable that, had he been left to himself, he might have been drowned. So exhausted was he. Will, however, grabbed him by the collar of his jacket and slowly dragged him to firm ground. He then took the precaution to bind his hands behind his back. Will marched his prisoner to the residence of Constable Brady, a quarter of a mile away, who took him to the town jail. Next day, Will Summers went before Justice Benson and swore out a complaint of malicious mischief against Ed Rickson. Ed lost no time in sending for Lewis Jarvis. "'Get me out of this, do you understand?' he said to Lewis when the lad appeared, or I'll blow the whole business from beginning to end. Lewis, terrified at the thought of public exposure, promised to enlist his father in Rickson's behalf. In order to secure the squire's cooperation, it is probable that Lewis made a clean breast of the matter to his father. At any rate, Squire Jarvis appeared for Ed when he was brought before Justice Benson. The prisoner was also charged with burglarizing the lawyer's office. The nabob, of course, refused to press this charge, and as there was not sufficient evidence against the rascal, it was allowed to drop. Will, with Sam Travis's assistance, recovered the short crowbar with which Rickson had intended to break down the dam and produced it against the prisoner. Rickson flatly denied that he had used it against Will's property with malicious intent, but both Will and Sam, as well as Constable Brady, who had visited the dam, testified to the abrasures on the boards which admitted of but one construction, so Ed was adjudged guilty by the justice and sentenced to thirty days' imprisonment. A day or so later, Squire Jarvis called on Mrs. Summers and notified her that, the promissory note having been recovered, she would be held for its payment. When Will came home from the factory, his mother told him of the squire's visit. "'We'll contest it, mother, on the ground of fraud. Call on Sam Travis's father. He's a good lawyer, and he'll advise you in the matter.' After supper, Jessie Fairweather came in, as she often did, to show Mrs. Summers a new dress pattern she had received from Boston. "'I've got something to tell you, Will,' she said while Mrs. Summers was out of the room for a short interval. "'But you must promise not to say a word about it to anyone.' "'All right,' said Will. "'I promise.' "'Tessie Rickson came to me today and begged that I would become friendly with her again.' for she said as long as she and I were not on speaking terms, none of the other girls would notice her. She admitted that it was she who put her pocketbook in the pocket of my dress on the day of the fire, in the hope of disgracing me. She said Louis Jarvis had put her up to it, and had told her I had said many unkind things about her, 
which of course was not so, and she now knows that Lewis Jarvis simply made a dupe of her in order to get square with me. But the worst thing of all, Will, she confessed to me that she was the cause of the fire at the mill, and told me why she set a match to the dresses of certain girls without thinking any further damage would result. She's a thoughtless girl with very poor principles, and I feel sorry for her. She'd get into a peck of trouble if it became known that she started the fire at the factory, said Will, not a little astonished at the revelation. Well, I must be going, Jessie said, as Mrs. Summers returned to the room. Why, what's the matter with the clock? Must be half-past eight now. But the hands point to a quarter-past seven, just as they did when I entered the room. Evidently it stopped, said Will, walking up to the mantelpiece. He took up the little Dutch timepiece and began to examine it. The heat must have warped the bottom, for the pendulum is caught on the swelling of the wood. While fumbling with it, the bottom suddenly came away in his hand, and a small piece of folded paper dropped out. Jessie picked it up and handed it to Mrs. Summers, who casually opened it. "'Why, Will,' she said in a tone of mingled surprise and joy, "'here is the missing receipt at last.' "'You don't mean it, Mother?' exclaimed the boy in amazement. His mother passed it to him. Received of Nathaniel Summers the sum of three hundred and six dollars in full satisfaction of his note of hand bearing date of April 20, 1895, read Will, and it's signed by Joe Rickson. That settles it, mother. You don't want a lawyer now. Isn't that splendid? exclaimed Jessie, clapping her hands with pleasure. How fortunate that the dear old clock stopped. The clock your father gave us, too, added Will. You were the first who noticed that it had stopped business for the first time since it came into our possession. I think you deserve a reward. Don't you, Mother? As he laid down the curious old timepiece. A reward? You silly... Oh! She could not help the exclamation, because just at that moment Will unexpectedly kissed her. Will allowed the case to be brought into court, and then when Squire Jarvis was gloating over the bill of costs he thought Widow Summers would have to pay, she produced the receipt and covered both the nabob and Joe Brixen with confusion. The same day, too, Will was waited on by three members of the town council and presented with the gold medal, appropriately inscribed, which had been awarded to him in recognition of his heroism at the factory fire. Will Summers' ten-acre pond produced a nice privilege in January, which netted him something like $3,000. Not only that, but the swamp lot thereafter annually netted him a similar sum, so that his game of chance, after all, resulted in a permanent income. Just enough for you and I to buy a nice little house and start housekeeping within a year or two, he said to Jessie when he showed her his first check from the Rockland Ice Company. And Jessie blushed radiantly, and clapped her pretty fingers over his mouth. The End End of Chapter 16 End of A Game of Chance By a Self-Made Man End of Fame and Fortune Weekly Number 4 Recording by Keith Salas